Livingston cat, he got hung up with a lion. I found that Casaboo-boo cat, though. They was wailing and wailing on his saxophone. Folks, Mackenzie Lambert here, your host for Mac and the Movies, where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse. This episode, we will be looking at the short but impactful filmography of Duke Mitchell, the self-professed king of Palm Springs. The films we'll be looking at include the infamous Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla, followed by his exploitation directorial efforts, Massacre Mafia style, and Gone with the Pope. There's another installment of the three tenors. In this session, John and I discuss the most memorable deaths in film. We also have another digital copy giveaway from the folks at Paramount Pictures. Before we look at the films, let's look at the man himself. Duke Mitchell was born Dominic Salvatore Maselli in Faro, Pennsylvania on May 26, 1926. Very little info regarding his childhood and adolescent years. In 1951, he teamed up with Jerry Lewis protege, Sammy Petrillo. They formed a borderline mimicry of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, yet often with Petrillo impersonating Martin while Mitchell imitated Lewis. The resemblance was so uncanny the duo were taken to court by Lewis. The case was later dismissed. In 1952, the duo made their one feature film together, Bela Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla. After the disastrous reception and box office, Mitchell and Petrillo separated. Mitchell continued his career performing in nightclubs and made a few appearances on the Flintstones as the singing voice for Fred Flintstone. Listen to him rock, listen to him roll, listen to the ring, ticky rockin' bird. Do you hear him? Well, grab him! Nail him! Listen to the rockin' bird that coo. Listen to the rockin' bird, he's a bird. The rockin' bird is swingin' all day long. Don't you listen to the rockin' bird, he's a coo. Listen to the nutty, nutty bird. The rockin' bird bouts out a real gone song. Come on, baby, go! Oh, listen to the rockin' bird, he's a gas. Won't you listen to the rockin' bird? The rockin' bird is swingin' all day long Listen, listen, listen to the rockin' bird Oh, listen to the crazy bird Ooh, the rockin' bird is wailin' his last song In the 1970s, he made two low-budget exploitation films, Massacre Mafia Style and Gone with the Pope. 
He continued to rub elbows with some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Lucille Ball, and Red Skeleton. Mitchell passed away on December 2nd, 1981 from lung cancer. Now let's dive into the movies. We got movie time! When do you talk a native language? I just started today. Well, what do you say? What do you say? I don't even know what I said. puts a gleam in Duke Mitchell's eyes. Your smile only added life to your masquerade. Muriel Landers puts the whammy on Sammy. takes off on a romantic chase of her own. Strange. But interesting. Very think so. What a charming compliment. Bella Lugosi finds the perfect subject to turn a gorilla into a goop and versa visa. troops in Guam when they end up on the island of Kola Kola. The natives welcome them with food and shelter until they can be rescued. One of the natives and love interest the Duke, Nona, works for Dr. Zaber. Zaber has come up with a means of turning men into apes. A planet where apes evolved from men? Jealous of Nona's affection for Duke, Zaber turns Duke into a gorilla. Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn Gorilla is one of the more nefarious titles in the realm of bad movies. The film ranks alongside the likes of Reefer Madness and the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed-up zombies. There were other factors that contributed to that reputation. First, there's the duo of Mitchell and Petrillo. Before working with Mitchell, Petrillo started out as working under Jerry Lewis in New York City. Fearing for his career, Lewis signed Petrillo under a contract and never put him to work to make any money. Since Petrillo was a minor, he was able to get out of the contract. Petrillo left New York for California, where he teamed up with Mitchell. Second, this film was produced in the later years of Bella Lugosi's career. Lugosi was deep in addiction, very thin and teeth missing. After this film, Lugosi would begin his friendship with Ed Wood Jr., 
Despite the state of Lugosi in his personal life, he was a true professional on camera. He delivered a lengthy, jargon-filled monologue only in one take, according to Lugosi's son, and was given an ovation from the cast and crew. What kind of experiments are you making, Doctor? Oh, I'm performing a series of experiments in evolution. Evolution? What's evolution? Scientists have proven that all living things originated in a process of evolution. They also know that there is a growth force that tends to make genetic changes physiologically and morphologically. Chimpanzees and gorillas are the highest members of the ape family and are the ancestors of man. Darwin, in his provisional hypothesis of pangenesis, assumes that every living cell contains a gemule, which is a hypothetical granular. I have found the chemical formula that simulates the growth force. And when nature takes years, I can, in a matter of hours, make a complete embryonic metamorphosis, both physiological and morphological. Do you understand? Well, uh... Sure. Third, spoiler warning for this 70-year-old film, the movie uses my most hated cliche in film, where the entire film turns out to be a dream. When a film is written into a corner, they have to use this trope and make everything that happened to that point now moot. The film itself is mediocre. The songs performed by Mitchell were okay. The man had a decent voice. Uh, the biggest piece would be Indeed I Do. You know that I'm the one who found you. That's why I'm always hanging around. Do I love you all? Do I? The jokes are not awful, but they're not good either. What makes the film intolerable is the performance of Sammy Petrillo. Don't get me wrong, the interview excerpts I've seen with him paint him as a very nice man. He had a great rapport with Lugosi and Lugosi's son on set. Sweetheart, may you rest in peace. I, I, um, I'm very sad about the way people depict him. Because he was a uh, he was a grandfatherly type man. He was very nice. I walk in and he, he was sitting there with he had a suit, a white suit. He was smoking a, a little cigar, and he was reading the Hungarian newspapers. And, and he was a, a very sweet, nice, quiet man. Like I said, how are you, Mister Gosey? How are you? And yeah, that was my first meeting with him. Just a very quiet, nice man, and, and but full of personality. Quiet, but when he talked, he he laughed, he joked, he had personality. Here's a young kid in his first starring role across from a horror legend, and he's having the time of his life. In the movie, Petrillo is enough to make you jab pencils in your ear. Case in point. Okay, banga banga. Since when do you talk a native language? I just started today. Well, what do you say? What do you say? I don't even know what I said. Now don't hit me, Dookie. Hit me in the head. Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla suffers from unfunny comedy and cheap writing. 
What pushes the film into worst movie ever territory is the performance by Petrillo. He will be a deal breaker for many, many viewers. Round and round while we're dancing, my heart makes us glad that we're living today. Each time I feel like romancing, my heart always goes tick a tee, tick a day. Round and round while we're dancing, my heart makes us glad that we're living today. Each time I feel like romancing, my heart always goes tick a tee, tick a day. Sally is the son of a Don who was exiled to Sicily. Mimi wants to go back to the United States to bring the Don back to prominence. Instead of New York City, which was the original home base for the Maselli family, he opts to go to Hollywood. When Mimi arrives in the U.S., he finds the mafia has fundamentally changed. Instead of the rackets and underhanded dealings, they have legitimate businesses. The ones peddling the drugs and prostitutes are hippies and pimps. These are people unfazed by Mimi's old school mafia tactics. Instead of changing with the times, Mimi escalates the violence. The blood and bullets come with a heavy price to pay. Mitchell was inspired to make Massacre Mafia style after seeing The Godfather. Mitchell even references the film in one of his monologues. Mitchell's years as a nightclub owner helped paint the world he presents in the film, rich in gory and gritty details. A stark dichotomy from the fancy, nostalgic world presented by Coppola and Mario Puzo. Thanks to different distributors, the film was released under a few titles. The Executioner and Like Father, Like Son are the most common outside of Massacre Mafia style. Thanks to the editing of Tony Mora, the film maintains a steady pace. The film rarely lets up. The opening scene with the shootout and the Mitchell cover of Tikati Tikate exemplifies Mora's energetic style. 
The use of music to propel the scene is not unlike Martin Scorsese or Quentin Tarantino. The sequence borderlines on prototype music video genius. The cast headed by Mitchell were either close friends or amateur actors. Duke Mitchell is great as Mimi. He plays the character with unapologetic sincerity, actually elevating the material. About the Italians. All we want to do is to eat, drink, be happy. What do we get? Disgrace. No, Chucky. The Italian hasn't been disgraced. You and I disgraced it. This old woman here is the one who's been disgraced. It's the one who's been taking the punches. She's the one who was handed the organ grinder and the monkey when she got off the boat. See these hands? You know what they smell of? Aregna. Pasanigol. Beautiful herbs. They gave you mustard choli, lasagna, pizza. The most appreciated foods in the world. What did we give her, Chucky? We gave her violence. We gave her death. We gave her dishonor. We gave these hands the ability to follow the rosary beads and pray for us while we're in jail facing the electric chair. These hands praying for me and you, kissing the cross for us before the guy pulls the switch. Let him call her WAP, Dago, the old guinea, the one with the bun in the back of her hair with the knitting needles in it and the knots in her stockings. Because to me, she's as pure as the homemade wine she makes, the cookies she bakes. She's as powerful as the atomic bomb that Fermi invented, her son. I love her, Chucky. I can't help but suspect Joe Pesci took acting notes from Mitchell. Given Pesci's time as a lounge singer, I wouldn't be surprised that those two had interacted at one point or another. Besides directing and acting, Mitchell also wrote the script, produced, and provided the music. He is the epitome of low-budget filmmaking. Film music composer Vic Caesar got a chance to work in front of the camera, playing the role of Jolly Rizzo. There is a natural feel to Caesar's performance. He doesn't go over the top or into exaggerated territory. Lorenzo Dodo plays the Don, Mimi's father. He's not on screen for very long, but we do see him as a kind man. This leads to a great misdirection in the film's closing scene. Cara Peters, as Liz, is the eye candy of the film. She would make a short career for herself in various sexploitation films. The biggest surprise was seeing George Buckflower play a member of the business-minded mafia. If you've seen any 80s John Carpenter film, you've seen George Flower. He was also the drunk hobo that appeared in the first two Back to the Future films. If you want to own a physical copy, it'll set you back around 30 bucks. There was a 2010 release courtesy of Grindhouse Releasing. It is worth it merely for the wealth of supplemental materials and featurettes as only Grindhouse Releasing can offer. If you only want the movie, Amazon Prime Video and Tubi.tv have you covered. A word of warning, there is some casual racism. If you're easily offended, then give this a little pass. That said, the film offers what you would expect from Grindhouse and Drive-In Fodder. Bullets, blood, boobs, and a genuine enthusiasm for filmmaking. Mitchell made the best film he could with the resources available to him. Hey, listen to this. People of the United States, judges, cops, all the law, I got something for you. Take this and stick it up in your mother's twat. Check? Yes. Give it a Why not? 
snatching? The Pope. The Pope? Once we got him, you know how much we're going to get for him? How much? I want a dollar from every Catholic in the world. scheme. Along with a ragtag group of convicts, they plan to kidnap the Pope and hold him ransom for a dollar from every Catholic in the world. Using Paul's boat, they set sail to Italy and infiltrate the Vatican. One of the convicts, known as the Old Man, bears a striking resemblance to the Pope. The Old Man and the Pope switch places. Paul and his boys escape with the Pope shortly before the old man is exposed as the fake Pope. With the Pope in custody, Paul waits for the ransom to come in. While the Pope is with Paul and his men, they go through a crisis of conscience. Paul becomes the last holdout, leaving him to decide if he lets the Pope free or continue to hold him prisoner. Go with the Pope was originally shot in 1975 on a budget of $100,000. Funding ran out before shooting could be finished. Mitchell died in 1981 with the raw footage collecting dust in his garage. Grindhouse releasing found the footage and in the mid-2000s started to piece the film together. In 2010, the film was completed and had a limited theatrical run before being released on DVD and Blu-ray. For around $30, it is well worth buying a copy because of the wealth of special features. Credit to Bob Morosky and the late stage Stallone, for bringing life to this lost gem. There's some more casual racism. This mostly centers on a woman of color solicited for prostitution. While Massacre Mafia style was a back-to-basics mafia exploitation movie, Gone with the Pope is much more ambitious. Paul sees religion as a hustle, not different than the heist he's pulled in the past. Yet, there may still be some hope for redemption as the kidnapping of the Pope made way for soul-searching. Unfortunately, he takes a path laden with murder. Peter, and his newly formed friendship with the Pope, offers the theme of redemption. Here is a man who tried to be on the right path, but fell back into his criminal ways for Paul's scheme. But he makes up for it when he accompanies the Pope back to safety after Paul has a change of heart. Compared to Massacre Mafia style, there is much more comic relief. One of the film's most notorious scenes is Paul chatting up an obese woman, then having her get in bed with Peter. It's a random bit that comes out of nowhere and gives a sense of absurdity. Uh, he must be like Professor Petrum, the Italian job, and he has a thing for thick, curvy gals. Are they big? I like them big. <laughs> They're enormous. Really? Very, very, very big. 
She's big. Big. Similar to Massacre Mafia style, Mitchell donned many hats for the film. Actor, director, producer, writer, and music. Adding to the music scape is Duke's son, Jeffrey, with the rock track, Jackknife. is a bizarre film that aims higher than the previous Mitchell effort. Not interested with making just another mafia film, Mitchell makes a surreal character study with hints of the supernatural. Don't expect another Massacre Mafia style and you will be entertained. And that wraps up this look at Duke Mitchell. Thanks for listening. Uh, Let me know your thoughts in the comments or on social media of this particular director. Next up is The Three Tenors, John and I share our top 10 memorable deaths in cinema in conjunction with that of Mr. Rob Hill. Hey folks, Mackenzie Lambert here, host of Mac and the Movies, uh, joined here for another installment of The Three Tenors with John Cleveland. Hi everybody. Uh, and this one is, uh, this one's going to be a, a really fun one. It's the top 10 memorable deaths in film. Yes. I'm looking forward to this one. <laughs> uh, just, uh, when you think of memorable deaths, you can either think of shocking, you can probably think of funny, you can probably think of, uh just unexpected that's and that's probably like one of the great things about uh movies is just that you know expect the unexpected yep very true you can even think of traumatic <laughs> like that's one of mine Wink, oh, yeah. nudge, nudge. all right so, uh, let's see what uh, mr hill has to say about memorable deaths how important a character is and whether their death is significant are not factors relevant to this list Funny, horrific, profound, or unexpected, all that matters is the character met an unforgettable end. Okay. All right, let's go ahead and see here. Number 10, Russell Franklin, played by Samuel L. Jackson in Deep Blue Sea. Uh, This is the (laughs) the super shark attack. Yes, the out of nowhere, them killing the biggest starring actor in the movie. Yeah, give it to you. It's a surprising one. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's see here. Number nine, Sergeant Elias, played by Willem Dafoe in Platoon. Oh, iconic. It's the cover of this, the freaking yeah. movie now. Yeah. yeah, it's it's just, and that music that plays in the background, oh, yeah. too, during that moment. Yeah. 
no, that scene's great. And mm-hmm. like, it's, you know, it, it doesn't get enough credit for being one of the best war films ever made. But yeah, no, that, that scene is, is amazing. And Prime like, Oliver is, Stone. Yo, yeah. Mm-hmm. Give the man credit where you, where you uh, can. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, number eight, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid played by Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Yeah, a depth you don't actually see. You just kind of hear. Oh, yeah. It's uh, the uh, the uh, Against All Odds Mexican. I believe it's a Mexican standoff is what they call it, because I know I've heard that reference dropped in uh, Shaun of the Dead and other different horror movies where you've got uh, en masse uh, monsters attacking a fortified location. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, it's just them against the basically half the Mexican army. Yep. And just... All they do is, you know, they jump the thing and jump the little barricade they got and still frames and you just hear the gunfire. Oh, uh, speaking of uh, zombies, number seven, Ben, played by Dwayne Jones in Night of the Living Dead. Ooh. Undoubtedly one of the most shocking endings I've probably ever seen in a film. Just because uh, this was at a time when no matter how bad things are, the good guys somehow always came out at the end and just not in this case. No. Yeah. And there's a lot of social commentary happening in that. And a lot of, there's a lot happening in that scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good one. I, you know what? I'm going to, that's my regret so far. That is not on my list. Yep. Same here, actually. Yeah. Uh, number six, Jill Masterson played by Shirley Eaton in Goldfinger. Uh, this is the girl that was completely covered in gold paint. Okay. I mean, it's a nice image, but I wouldn't. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't know how iconic a death that is, actually. No, and Screen Buster has actually kind of busted that myth already. She would not have suffocated from that, so. Yeah, no. Yeah, so. Yeah, I don't I don't know about that one. I guess it's kind of iconic because there was that myth going around for a while. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, that wouldn't have been on my yeah. list. Uh, number five, First Scanner, played by Louis Del Grande in Scanners. Mm, good play, Mr. Hill. <laughs> Yeah, that scene's amazing. It's the greatest. One of the greatest exploding heads of all time. It is. The, I'm, I think it's the greatest exploding head of all time. Yeah. Yeah, that's on my list. I'm not even going to try to hide it. Like, yeah. That, it's so good. And uh, to be honest with you, I didn't think uh, Mr. Hill would have called that one out. So yeah. kudos to him. That's a great scene. All right. Oh, another big one. Number four, Kane, played by John Hurt in Alien, the chestburster sequence. That is a great scene. Mm-hmm. That is uh, that is a very memorable death, uh, especially because they didn't tell the actors exactly no. what was going to happen. <laughs> Veronica Cartwright's reaction is her legitimate reaction. It's yep. just uh. she knew something was they knew something was going to happen to John and he was going to die. But they had absolutely no idea what was going to happen. They were told to go with it. Yeah. Uh, the, so the, good. The combined magic of H.R. Geiger and Carlo Rambaldi. Uh, it's yes. fantastic. Fantastic. Good call. Uh, number three, Tony Montana, played by Al Pacino in Scarface. Say hello to my little friend. Mm-hmm. Actually, speaking of that, the actor who was the assassin that actually shot him with the double barrel, he died like uh, just a week ago, I think. Ah, that's unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. Just uh, coincidentally brought, brought that up. But yeah, no, <laughs> that is a great, uh, great right. scene in a very good movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, okay. This is actually a bit of a surprise. Number two, Jack Dawson, played by Leonardo DiCaprio in Titanic. He didn't have to die. There no, he so didn't. No, yeah, there, there was room on the there was room so on that much. armoire. What are you talking about, Kate Winslet? You know, there, there's a myth that uh, he didn't die, and that he he became uh, the Great Gatsby. He became the Great Gatsby. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I don't I usually it. like those stories, but it I makes sense. Just, it just makes sense. And I, to be honest with you, just hate the fact that she didn't scoot over. Nah. And <laughs> yeah. Oh, 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 wow. Okay. Number one. Uh, uh, I don't know how I feel about this one. I kind of agree with it, but at the same time, it's like, uh, I don't think it's yeah. the greatest, but uh, number one, Mr. Curioso, played by Terry Jones in Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, uh, The I, Wafer Thin Mint. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I see that more as a sketch. I know it's part in a movie, but like, uh, I, I, you know, I give it to him. You know, it's teach their own and stuff. I'm definitely going to have, mm-hmm. per se, ones on mine that maybe don't think. But like, I kind of see that more as a, a mini sketch in a movie as opposed to. A character, but he did mention that it's not about if the character was important or if mm-hmm. anything. It's just it was a memorable death. And hey, if I'm talking exploding heads, I exploding guys are another thing. So you yep. know, I give him that. I give him that. All right, uh, that's actually probably one of the more uh, agreeable lists we've had with uh, Mr. Yeah. Hill. Yeah. Uh, all right, uh, John, let's go ahead and see what you have as far as your top ten memorable deaths. All right, um, my number ten is one that I literally just assumed I had to write in the list. They couldn't. I didn't even want it on the list, but it had to be written. Psycho, the shower scene. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. How in the actual world is it not, if if not number one on his list, it's not even just, because I figured if it wasn't on his list, it would be the, oh, here's the one I'm not putting on my list, because it's so iconic. It is the iconic death scene. It is. Uh, it yeah. redefined horror. It redefined how you film yeah, and uh, yeah, a part of me thinks it's one. I, I feel it's one of those that it's so obvious it doesn't need to be mentioned, just because it is so universally renowned. And that was actually uh, that was actually recently. Um, I was watching Jeopardy, and that was actually a final Jeopardy answer. It was like uh, it was like a, a Playboy Playmate, chocolate syrup, and a melon were instrumental parts of a scene in this movie, and the answer was Psycho. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Yeah. I was going to say chocolate syrup's never never been so terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> And again, it's not even one I consider that interesting per se. Like, it's not that memorable to me. It's just the one I feel like had to be brought up. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy I did bring it up because Mr. Hill did not. So, yeah. Number nine. Ah, This is this is one that this is on here for me. This is what this is. It's Die Hard. Ellis. Uh, He was the loud mouth. Yeah, he's the loud mouth. Played by uh, Hart. uh, I'm going to mispronounce the name. Book Connor. Is not as good as a negotiator as he thinks he is. Mm-hmm. Shot off screen by Hans Gruber, played by the great Alan Rickman. Yeah, but no. you see the dead body, you see the exit wound in the head, you you yep. see all you need to see to know what happened. Yep, and they're just the mere fact like we all. It was sweet when they killed Ellis. I mean, like yeah. it was everyone loved it, but at the same time, it changed it from being, you know, it made it it made it so they knew they couldn't screw with him. So mm-hmm. it's very important to the film and. It's on there for me because no one liked Ellis. <laughs> so, all right. Number eight. And this is this is one that I'm, I'm just going to list. It's a thing. Movie is seven. It's Detective Mills, played by Brad Pitt, becoming Wrath, killing John oh. Doe, played by Kevin Spacey. Because the whole movie, you're it's sitting there. Building up to that. Building up to that moment. And then it pans back and you see that mist. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's it's arguably perfect. It's one of those movies that I, I wouldn't change a, anything about how it's written. Um, obviously, there's some you know I'm not going to get into the Kevin Spacey thing. That's mm-hmm. a different thing. But like that death 
of a movie known for having some really intense, interesting deaths, that's the one for me. And that's the only one we actually see happen. All the other Correct. ones we only see the aftermath of. Correct. Correct. So, all right. Number My, seven. Oh, yeah. All right. Just moving on. Mile a minute over here. <laughs> Number seven. It's RoboCop. It's, you know, Officer Murphy, played by mm. Peter Weller, is brutally gunned down by the gang, led by uh, Clarence, uh, Kurtwood Smith there. He's eviscerated by bullets. Literally torn to pieces. Literally torn to pieces. I remember seeing it as a kid, and I was just like, this is the most graphic thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I, why are they letting children look at this? <laughs> <laughs> But no, like that scene is so brutal. They uh, just annihilate the man. They destroy him. His death mm-hmm. is just, and I mean, he, you know, obviously he's the main character. There are parts, you know, he goes back, but he is proclaimed dead. He dies from that. He, they just annihilate that man with gunfire. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the more unforgettable deaths I can say in film. Yeah. 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 All right. Number six. And uh, we actually, uh, we had a discussion about this before we started recording. Um, this is a scene that actually isn't, it's in the movie, but to really get the craziness of the scene, for me, you got to see, like, there's a deleted uh, footage you can find online. It's in Jaws. Uh, you just Google it, you'll find it. It's the lost scene of the estuary man when he saves Michael's life. There's a scene in Jaws where Sheriff Brody, played by Roy Schneider, Schreider, um, his son, Michael, is in the estuary with some friends on a little boat. A uh, guy comes up to try to, hey, kids, you got to get out of the water. There's a shark. Meanwhile, Jaws comes up behind him, knocks both the boats over. The kid goes in the water. The guy goes in the water. Then you see this really cool shot from above the water where Jaws is swimming just below the water. And you see the guy, and he's trying to climb up on his boat. And then you see Jaws go by him, and he just takes the guy under. Well, what you don't see is a scene that was cut because it was way too disturbing for the time, into which... Instead of pulling the guy into the water, Jaws grabs the guy and then goes t- towards the, the the kids. And the guy in the shark's mouth grabs Michael and holds him at arm's length in front of him as kind of a way to keep him away from the shark. But while doing so, he's just like staring because he's obviously in immense pain. He's in shock. And Michael's staring back because he's traumatized. And then eventually Jaws goes beneath the water, takes the guy with him. And as the guy goes below, he lets Michael go. And that, when you see that scene, the full scene, you really understand why the next scene in the movie is them going to the hospital and Michael's laid out on the gurney. He's fine physically, but the boy is obviously seen some stuff. He's mm-hmm. traumatized. And I never, like, there's a lot of great scene in Jaws. I personally love the point where the, the shark actually jumps up on the ship and gets Quint. You know, Ahab is killed by Moby Dick and all. But for me... It's that lost scene. That scene, I remember when I saw it first, I'm like a behind-the-scenes documentary thing, and I'm like, wow, that is an intense scene. That It sat with me ever since. It's an incredibly memorable scene because that is so intense. I completely understand why it wasn't in a movie, you know, released in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that's my that's my number six, the estuary scene in Jaws. It's crazy. And that sounds like it's really mostly just like the, the scariest thing is what you don't see. Like you only really see the surface. You don't really see what's going on under it, which I think is it makes yeah. that scene all the more effective. Yeah. I mean, it, even the first scene in Jaws where she, the, the, the new uh, woman is swimming around, you'd never see the shark. You just see something moving her around. It's terrifying. Never see the, never see the monster. It's amazing. Spielberg's a genius. All right. 
Now, from one monster to a completely different kind of monster. Number five, because a slasher killer had to be on this list. Mm. I got my favorite kill in all the slashers I've ever seen. The Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warrior. There are another one I really like too from the same movie, but really when breast attacks come down to it, it's Jennifer uh, Death, played by Penelope Sudro. She dreams that she wants to be on TV. Oh, welcome to prime time, bitch. Yep, exactly. It's so iconic. I actually have a friend who has that tattooed on her, the scene. Um, It's so iconic. He becomes the TV, smashes her into into the screen. It's great. And again, a slasher had to be on my list, and that's Mm -hmm. my favorite slasher kill of all time. I've said it before. I'm more of a Jason fan. I like uh, Friday the 13th more, but... You know, you can't you can't get away from it. Freddy's got yeah, the personality. He has an personality yeah. and the creativity. Mm-hmm. All right, number four. Now, this is the one that's traumatic. More, I guess the Jaws one is also incredibly traumatic. Let me say that. But mm-hmm. this is the one. This is the tearjerker. This is the one that when I wrote it on the list, I'm like, uh, I don't know if it's the actual death or it's the whole thing, but it has to be on here. Thomas J's death in My Girl. Yeah. Macaulay Culkin is Thomas J. Him and uh, uh, Veda go out. Uh, he, she loses her mood ring near the bees. He says he's allergic. To get his friend's ring back, he goes and tries to find the mood ring. He finds it. And the bees sting him. He's allergic. Mm-hmm. He dies. And, you know, I know it's not the death. Technically, that death. Oh, it's so it's so traumatic. It's I it's uh, the girl losing it at the funeral that really that. Yeah, and I'm that, just like, yeah, you can't not bring that up. The funeral scene is arguably one of the saddest scenes in film history. I don't care what anyone says. That scene where she just tells him she's telling everybody about his glasses, how he can't see is just heart wrenching. And his death is so traumatic because that movie is geared towards, you know, preteens. It's mm-hmm. that's a that's a 13 year old movie. It's, you know, and to tackle something like that at that age is really inspiring that the filmmakers and the writers and everyone did that. And it's just, Oh, it's heart wrenching. No, oh. that's, that's, that's one I didn't think of, but no, a- absolutely. I 100% yeah. in agreement on that. Yeah. So, all right. Top three, a uh, little, I don't want to say lighter note. These are all horrible deaths, but <laughs> you know, not, mm-hmm. You know, not as painful per se is like Mr. Hill. I have to agree. It's Kane's death. You know, Kane, mm-hmm. uh, John Hurt in Alien, the chestburster. It's everything we said about it with, before. It's amazing. It's surprising. Yep. It's graphic. It's it's just it. Arguably more than anything else in that series, it's the thing that defined the Alien. And it's just such from a bygone era because if they did that today, it would just be, you know, John Kurt would have a green dot on his chest and they would CGI an alien on it. No, this is yeah. back when they actually used puppetry and they had to, you know, think outside of the box as far as, okay, how do we get John in position for this thing to pop out of his chest and make it look believable? Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. And again, it's so tr- it's so visceral because, like you said, the puppetry, they're, they're real things. It's not CGI. Mm-hmm. So. It's great. Great. Very memorable death. Number two. Again, Mr. Hill, kudos. The head explosion scene. Uh, Revek uh, played with Michael Ironside in one of the only movies he doesn't lose an arm in. Uh, (laughs) 
using his mental powers to kill the contact scanner at the marketing uh, event demonstration of all things, mm-hmm. just blowing his head up. And because you didn't expect it, I remember seeing it the first time, and I'm just like, okay, he's they're having like a battle of wills or something. Like, what what's happening? And then boom, like, mm-hmm. whoa, amazing. It's I still think it's the greatest head explosion ever mm-hmm. put to film. And it's weird that there's that's a thing. Ah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we get to number one, I do have an honorable mention. Okay. Um, it's a kind of a weird honorable mention, but it's so I didn't want to put it on the list. Um, but I thought it's worth bringing up. It's Meet Joe Black, the entire film. If you're uh, unfamiliar with Meet Joe Black, have uh, you seen I'm, it? I'm uh, familiar with the one scene where he just gets ping ponged by cards. That's the only that's the only oh, part yes. I remember from it. All right, so in Meet Joe Black, and I'm not going to spoil the movie for you. It's okay. I know you know a little old at this point, but the ping pong by cars thing is referring to um, a a man gets hit by a car rather unexpectedly, and what happens is death, the actual aspect, death himself, the Grim Reaper, takes that man's body, and then goes because he ever so often he just wants to experience what life is like. He doesn't really get to do that in his quote unquote day job. Mm-hmm. And so he chooses Anthony Hopkins' character uh, is a well-off uh, businessman. He owns a um, a paper, a, a paper distribution company. So like somebody who actually like uh, owns a paper, uh, a newspaper. Okay. Um, and he he basically tells him, "Listen, I'm you have I'm here to kill you, but I'm gonna give you some time because I want to experience the world, and you're gonna be my guide around it." And they have a back and forth, and it's really great. It's the the concept of. Anthony Hopkins' character slowly over the course of the film, he knows he's going to die. The, like, he knows that. He's literally mm-hmm. talking to the Grim Reaper. It's just him using that time to kind of get his world together. Affairs in order. Also, affairs in order. But also, you know, coming to grips with what it means to be an, an older man or, you know, an older person in general and, and, and die and realize he's going to have to, you know, that's just something that's going to happen. And death, played by Brad Pitt, is just phenomenal in his weird takes on the world and how he does things and their interactions are phenomenal. Um, I highly suggest it. It's, it's an amazing film for anyone who hasn't seen it, but I just wanted to put it in this because it is an incredibly memorable death for me, not only because of the out of nowhere death very early in the film, which is that the whole movie is about his death. It's slowly building up to it in a very well-designed way. So I just thought it was very important to bring up, but it isn't a, it's not like his specific death. That moment is memorable, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, okay. That was a lot of prelude <laughs> in my number one. And I was going to put this lower because it's not as emotionally impactful or it's not as it doesn't mean anything like some of the other ones on my list. But then I thought it's still the one to this day that I have rewound and watched over and over again. Not for any kind of morbid curiosity, just because it's so cool. Mm-hmm. And, like, why did no one think to do this before? And I've seen people try things that are kind of like it in movies, and it always comes off cheesy, where this didn't. Okay. The movie's 13 Ghosts from 2001. It's the remake. Okay, I think I know the one you're talking about now. I would have to assume you know the one I'm talking (laughs) about. It's the coolest one ever. (laughs) Benjamin Moss, he's an accountant lawyer character. He's cut in half vertically by a glass door. Now Mm. Now, that sounds pretty cool to begin with. Now, here's the but part the, that's sweet. The front he half gets, of him slides down, right? And then you no, see, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but they do it slowly where his tie <laughs> loosens. His glasses fall off. 
he seems like he's really surprised as he slowly slides down the front of the door and the back of him stays. So you see the back half of his body cut. You see his brain. You see all that. It's so cool. And mm-hmm. like I said, the other ones are more traumatic and they maybe mean so. But I don't every time I've ever uh, I've ever told somebody about that, if they've never seen the movie before, when they watch it, like, oh, dude, that was so cool. It's just so memorable. It's such an interesting, innovative way to to do that without coming off as cheesy. Like I, I've seen other films do something where they tried to do it to a more extreme degree and it just ends up, oh, look, the person's a pile of blood on the floor. That just doesn't look as good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, oh, no. that's, 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 that's a good one. Yeah, I was going to say, that's my list. So uh, what do you got? I'm interested to hear what... Uh, All right. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and get my honorable mention out of the way just because it has been mentioned already. And that sure. was uh, from Platoon, uh, Willem Dafoe's character. That It's just such a powerful, yeah. striking moment. Yeah, 100% agree. Mm-hmm. Okay, that said, uh, number 10. All right. Um, does it count as a death if uh, we're talking about like a zombie? Because uh, zombies are already dead. So do they count? Or is that... I don't know. But anyway... Number 10, the airfield zombie played by Jim Crutt in Dawn of the Dead. This is the zombie that gets a little too high up on a pile of boxes and gets the top of his head sliced off by helicopter propellers. Ooh, good call. Oh, yeah. Uh, And they kind of telegraph it just because he's got that huge Frankensteinian dome, which kind of tells you, okay, something's going to happen to his head, and I want to see what happens. (laughs) Yeah, I guess... (laughs) You know, like I know how the stunt was done now, but as like when I was younger, I'm like, oh, they actually like they put something on his head, and then they actually got close enough, and the blades took it off. Yep, yeah, <laughs> <That's> not, <laughs> uh, not at all. That would be incredibly dangerous. Yes, uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's a good stunt. That's yeah. a good call. Uh, number nine, uh, uh, it's the uh, Predator, played by Kevin Peter Hall in the Predator. Uh, not so much how he's killed, but when he's got that uh, self-destructive ice counting down, and he just starts laughing. Oh, and man. that laugh just stuck with me for the entire time. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a good one. Yeah, like his that that creepy where you know it's not his laughing. He's just this is him going through the voices he's had in the past and mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Yep. Uh, number eight, Howard Payne, played by Dennis Hopper in Speed, where uh, him and Keanu are fighting on top of the subway, and then he just gets his head completely taken off by one of the uh, the red lights in the tunnel. At least I'm tall. <laughs> uh, just yeah. out of out of nowhere, but uh, and it's Dennis Hopper. Come on. Oh yeah, no. I, I regret not having him on uh, some of our lists. Like he's one of those actors I just keep trying to put in the list mm-hmm. somewhere, and it just it somehow doesn't really ever work out. But yeah, no, that's a good death scene. That's a real, it's a real solid one. Yeah. Uh, my uh, number seven. Uh, it's Die Hard, but it's the fall of Hans Gruber, played by <laughs> Alan Rickman. Uh, just because yeah. the the look on his face when he he lets go, that's legitimately his reaction to him actually falling for the stunt, and it's just yeah. wonderful, wonderful stuff. Yeah, they, I think they said they were going to have him fall on five; they were going to count down from five, and they dropped him on one. <laughs> so that is literally yeah. his. He was surprised. Yeah, so that uh, that almost was the one I chose for mm-hmm. mine, but I just was like, ah, no. Alice, Alice is good Alice. though. Alice is a good Alice one. Go with good Alice. Yeah, so. Okay, my number six is Jake the Redneck, played by Danny Hicks in Evil Dead 2. Uh, first, he gets the crap beat out of him by Possessed Ash. 
Uh, then he makes his way back to the cabin. He tries to get in, gets stabbed in the chest with the Kandarian dagger by the professor's daughter. Mm-hmm. Then he's dragged across the cabin from the back to the front, and he's put next to the cellar door. Then he's grabbed by the possessed Henrietta, dragged down into the basement, and just a gush of blood comes out from the basement door. And it's just like, how much worse can it get for this guy than it already has? And Sam <laughs> Raimi and them figured it out. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a good call. I never think of how bad he really, really had it, man. Boy, did he have it bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and then being liquefied by a Kandarian demon. That's, that's yep. a bad way to go, man. Bad way to go. Uh, number five. Now, this uh, when I say this, this should not be a surprise to you at all. The spear kill from A Bay of Blood. Oh, yeah, no. Yeah. yeah I, I was waiting for that. <laughs> yeah, it was so good. Even Friday the 13th had to borrow it. Yeah, no, it's classic, mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. Steal only from the best. Yep. <laughs> uh, number four, Bob, played by John Morgan, a.k.a. Giovanni Lombardo Radici for City of the Living Dead. Uh, this is where he's found in the, the garage by the very overprotective father. Uh, he's dragged over to an industrial drill and then has his head proceeded to be pierced by that uh, industrial drill. And yeah, yeah and they... And it's 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 typical Fulci. He just sticks right to it. You think he's going to cut away, but nope. You see the drill right go into his head and out on the other side. Yeah, that is uh, yeah, that is a really intense death scene because like that's one where like how in the world did they pull that off? Yeah, that's, yeah. Kudos. Oh yeah. Uh, and number three, uh, th- it was th- for the longest time. This was my number one until it got bumped off by two better ones. But it still is a damn good one in its own right. It's Captain Rhodes, played by Joseph Pilato in Day of the Dead, where he is just ripped in half. I was waiting for that one. <laughs> like I, I, I thought about it on mine, but it got bumped out by everything else. But yeah, that's <laughs> choke on it. Choke on it. Awesome scene. Awesome mm-hmm. scene. Uh, kind of highlighted, made fun of, homage, whatever you want to say, in uh, Dawn of the Dead. Oh, yeah. Dawn of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, uh, the death of the, the nerdy, uh, the nerd, the one guy that uh, is jealous of Sean. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I can't think of his name, but I know who it is. Yeah. All right. And of course, number two, this should be no surprise the chestburster scene with uh, John Hurt and Alien. Yeah. There's, it just has to be on the list. Yeah. And uh, number one, uh, I think you might kick yourself with this one, but it's uh, the defibrillator scene with Dr. Cooper and Vance Norris, played by Richard Dysart and Charles Hallahan in John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I that. it's, it's literally my favorite horror movie. <laughs> How one of its deaths didn't sneak into this. Well, it's like me and Peter Bank. It's like me and Peter Bankman in Ghostbusters. It's like it's one of those things where I should have put it in there, but I for some reason I didn't. Yeah. Oh, that is such a good deck, though. His arms just annihilated. And they found an actual amputee who was missing both of his arms, and they just put like a mask appliance over the guy that was molded after the doctor. And it's like that's all they had to do. It's like, ah. Uh, they don't make it like they used to anymore. No, that well, that movie. Oh, so, so many good deaths in that movie. But you know what? You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna say that I, I the only way you can save face for not saying it is maybe he didn't die from the arms. It was the flame Flight thrower. thrower. That yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah, you got me on that one. Yeah. See, I thought you were gonna choose Psycho, man. It's classic. Uh, yeah. yeah. But no, that's such a great scene. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, uh, that I think that's uh, that, that was probably one of our best lists too. I mean, just oh, yeah. just when we thought that the coolest characters was one of our best lists, here we come up with memorable deaths, and it's like uh, we 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 constantly come up with ones that are like, oh, I should have put that one on there. Yeah, I mean, in all fairness, like there's whole. Se- I mean, what what is Final Destination? But a seat uh, in the Soft series, they're just both designed to just have cool deaths. Yeah. You know? Yep. So like, it's it's impressive that actually none of those actually made it onto it. But, uh, yeah, I'm positive that if somebody wanted to, they could come up with a list that didn't have any of the ones any of three of us had said. Oh, no. Nah. Me or you. Yeah. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, those are solid. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And I think that's a, a pretty good uh, note to sign off on. Uh, we, we can't. Your list, uh, whoever's listening, obviously your list is going to be completely different than ours. Go ahead and feel free to let us know what your favorite deaths are in uh, the comments below because we know that there are just infinite possibilities for this list. Oh, yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Just like everything, it's subjective, but, like, these are going to be all over the place. So we'd love to, we'd love to hear your, your list. And on that note, uh, this is Mackenzie Lambert. And this is John Cleveland. Signing out. Bye. New today on digital, Pierce Brosnan leads a star-studded cast in the action-packed high-stakes heist thriller, The Misfits, also starring Nick Cannon, Tim Roth, and Jamie Chung. A band of modern-day Robin Hoods recruit a renowned thief to help them pull off the heist of the century. Hold on tight for the thrill ride of the summer. Buy or rent The Misfits now on digital and on demand, rated R from Paramount Pictures. Want to double your chances of winning? Tell me your favorite non-James Bond Pierce Brosnan film. I'll announce the winners on Friday, June 25th. And that brings this episode to an end. Thanks for listening. Next month marks three years of making the movies. Throughout the month, I have special guests, which I'm going to keep a surprise. June 2nd and June 16th, I will be looking at more films from the iconic Italian maestro Lucio Fulci. July 30th, I will wrap up my look at the final films of the action comedy duo, Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill. If you enjoyed this content, uh, feel free to share this with your friends on social media. Uh, Go ahead and get uh, word of the show out there. Um, It's uh, nice being one of the best kept secrets of the internet, but now I kind of want more people to listen to this show. So if you can go ahead and share this on your Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whichever, that would be greatly appreciated. Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert for Mech in the Movies, signing off. is that Jimmy has been Duke's idol ever since the young California-based entertainer played his first nightclub date back in New York at age 17. King Casey filled up the band. Fill it up. Let me hear it. I'll be with you. It's at
Durante came in with Margie to see me. I'm working this little joint. Now, you know how I work. I kick and I yeah. jump. And Durante was frustrated with these shoes because he wears slippers, you know. He's looking at the shoes. He's looking at me. He's looking at the shoes. He's looking at me. Finally couldn't take it anymore. He looked at me and he said, You brought your dancing shoes. Jimmy, the schnazola, Mr. Malaprops. I've known a gentleman for 25 years. Lots of times I hear someone say that they know Jimmy very, very well. And the first thing he does in the morning is sing. Well, actually, the first thing he does in the morning is a prayer. Good night, Mrs. Calabash. I send you a kiss till we meet and we laugh and perhaps reminisce. And finally, I'm sure that we will know that unfinished song that will go on as long as there's love.